Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. <laughs> my dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. My dad said that Thomas McDonald sounded like he was talking to himself in the mirror. My dad liked what he had to say. Thomas McDonald has 30 years of experience working in both the financial industry and the healthcare industry. And the aging services industry is a lot to know. Thomas McDonald, welcome. How was Florida? It was great. <laughs> the weather was perfect. You know, I, I think we had one day of rain. I was down there for about a month and a week of it was with our grandkids. So we had a great time. Oh, that's special. That's what life is about, right? It is. It is. I'm looking forward to more of that time as opposed to less. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like your worldview changes at this stage of the game? Oh, I think without question, you know, you, you have perspective that life's more than just work. I have a number of friends of mine that are a little older than I am that are retired and they are all enjoying it. They all had a great deal of success throughout their careers. But, you know, at the end of the day, no one even talks about that anymore. It's all about spending time with the grandkids, traveling, you know, what are you doing to give back, that kind of thing. So without question. Yeah, that's really interesting. Last time we talked too, you even talked about the importance of capturing memories and how hard that is mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, I think we get so caught up in our, you know, work lives. Even on vacation, I think people are focused on, you know, okay, I got to get back to work. I have all these things I got to catch up on. And, and so, you know, it's nice, even though I was working while I was gone, it wasn't, you know, there were days when I just said, okay, I'm not going to work today. I'm going to take off, you know, whether it be with our grandkids or with some friends and stuff like that. I played golf three times. I mean, I haven't played golf three times in a one month period and I couldn't tell you when. So, yeah. That's amazing. I'm, I'm glad you got to do that. So I wanted to start off and talk about which is a dirtier word, financial services or senior care? (laughs) I should say financial services since I'm not in it anymore. I understand why people may have a negative view of both of them, depending upon their perspective. And yet what I find is that the vast majority of people that I worked with in the financial service industry and now in the senior care industry are really very committed people. And so it's easy to generalize about something, but I think that, you know, they're really both industries that A, have a significant impact on people's lives and B, are filled with primarily, you know, good people that are trying to do the right thing. That's good that you had that experience. You ran a trust department. I would like to talk about how to set up a trust and what pitfalls can we avoid? Well, you know, in terms of setting up a trust, it's really pretty straightforward. I mean, attorneys will draw up the trust documents. There's there's kind of a boilerplate. Trust documents are typically written with rather broad language that state that the trustee has the discretion 
to provide for the health, education, and well-being of whoever the beneficiaries are. That's kind of the boilerplate language. And then as the person that's drawing up the trust, you then have the discretion to put additional language in the trust to make sure that your wishes are carried out in the event you know, that, that you're gone. You know, I think people set up trusts for oftentimes for tax purposes initially, but it also really provides you with a way to distribute your assets, you know, in a responsible fashion, you know, taking care of, you know, whoever it is that you want to take care of. It's important to understand, I think, prior to even being with an attorney, what are your goals and objectives with this trust? And there's some kind of misconceptions about trusts. And I'll tie this back to the senior care industry. Oftentimes people think the government's going to pay for my long-term care needs. And, you know, that's Medicaid. And Medicaid only provides and pays for long-term care if you don't have any assets left. Or if you're a married couple, if you have a very limited amount of assets left. So people think, well, I'll put my money in trust and that way it'll protect it and the government will pay. But in order to do that, your trust has to be a revocable or excuse me, an irrevocable trust, which means that you've now given up control, at least a, a certain amount of control over your own money to do that. And then the government can come after assets. They can look back, you know, it's now a five-year period, I believe, most states where they can, you know, if you tried to hide your money and put it in a trust so that the government would pay for your, your long-term care, the government can go back to your family after you passed away and try and capture some of that money back. It's important to know what's your goals and objectives for doing this. You know, oftentimes, especially in this day and age, when you have so many blended families where you have divorces, and then people get remarried, and now you're bringing in other children and grandchildren into the equation, it allows you to kind of take care of who you want to take care of. So for example, you have a you know, 65-year-old man who's, whose wife passes away, and a few years later, he remarries, and she has adult children of her own. Well, he may want to make sure that his inheritance goes and takes care of his new wife, but that in the event that she passes away, that money then flows to his children as opposed to her children. So a trust is a document that allows you to make sure those kind of things happen. I'm sure you have seen situations where maybe the language was so broad where lawsuits have happened. Without question. And, you know, there can be lots of unintended consequences that happen when you drop a trust. One of the things I found throughout my career is that, and I just had this conversation with a friend of mine on this topic just this past week, people say, oh, my kids all get along. Nobody's going to be fighting over money. And my response to that is, why would you want to even create that potential opportunity? Make sure things are spelled out clearly and correctly, and everybody understands people's roles. But lawsuits happen all the time because, you know, one of two reasons. It's either people didn't get their fair share, what they believe to be their fair share, so it's all over money. And sometimes it's over personal effects that really have very little monetary value, but might have some type of emotional value for people in the family. And if you don't clearly spell out who gets what, that can create problems. For example, one of your children says to their mom, I really, really like that piece of artwork or, you know, your china or some something that might have some, you know, some value, not monetary, but, you know, people look at it and say they have an emotional connection to it. So mom says, oh, no problem. You know, when I'm gone, you can have that. And then, you know, mom and dad are gone. And all of a sudden, another sibling wants whatever that item is. And sibling, the first sibling says, oh, mom promised that to me. And they're off to the races with fights. A trust document and, and wills don't necessarily get down into the nitty gritty of non-monetary items. But I still recommend to people that if you've got items in your family that you think have some sentimental value to people, 
put it in writing. Just say, here's, who's get, here's who gets what, or at least identify the process for how people can go about selecting those items, those non-monetary items. Now, you yourself are a father. What are your thoughts about carrying on money or entitlement or divvying things up evenly? Good question. I would say a couple of things to that. The first is you mentioned entitlement. And I think that's something that doesn't get addressed through a trust. That's really through how you raise your children. If there's not accountability to your children, if they're not held accountable for their actions, if they don't have to get a job, for example. I mean, my kids all had jobs through high school and through college, and that didn't pay their way through college necessarily. It certainly provided some of their money, but it taught them the value of hard work and the value of a dollar. So the entitlement piece, you know, it starts at a young age, really. In terms of you know, leaving money behind and, and how do you do that? I like to say that fair doesn't mean equal. Now, in the minds of many people, fair does mean equal. For example, if you have a million dollar estate and you have four children, then for those people who think fair means equal, it means each kid is going to get $250,000. However, I found that there's reasons why one child might get more uh, or you might choose to give one more than another. For example, let's say that, go back to that million dollar estate, you've got two children and one of them is you know, a hedge fund manager who makes $3 million a year and the other is a social worker you know, who makes $60,000 a year. You might decide that the child that's the social worker could benefit more. Their life could be impacted in a more meaningful way if they got, instead of half a million dollars, maybe they got $750,000. And so I think, again, that's up to each individual, but I think looking at it that way and realizing that you can treat all your children fairly without it having to be equal gives you more flexibility in carrying out your wishes. We had a situation where one son was in our family business and the other two were not. And so we had to figure out if if the son involved in the business is going to carry on the business and there's a monetary value to that. How do we address that in the estate? Because if we excluded that, he may end up with more. Or if we allowed each of them to get a third ownership of the business, it could create potential problems. So again, that's something where the exact monetary split might not be equal, but there's ways to do it to make sure it's fair. Yeah, last time we talked too, you had some tips on if you're going to work with your spouse. You talked about sometimes you need to clearly define the roles and certain <laughs> roles are good for certain personality types. Right. You know, whether you're working with your spouse or just to have a good working marriage, these are things that you probably have to address, right? It's, it's not just, matter of fact, we, um, for a number of years, I've used an assessment tool in different companies called DISC. And it's a, for lack of a better description, it's, it's a personality assessment for the workplace. And so it identifies different, you know, character traits and how they apply to the workforce. And, you know, I joked about it because when I brought it into our current company, my wife and I both did it. And then she's like, well, see, you're doing this because you're an I or, or you're a C. And the more you know about your spouse, the better the relationship. So as far as working together, though, um, you know, I think that everybody's different. I know a husband and wife that are realtors. They've had a, they've built a very good business together. They work very well together. They do have some clearly defined roles. You know, one is more about the sales and the other is more about managing some of the customer service aspects of the business. But, you know, I do think it's important for you to have clearly defined roles. I mean, this is certainly true of any business, but if you're working with 
with your spouse, because it's not just the dynamics of the working relationship, but at the end of the day, you go home and let's face it, we all carry work home, but if you're both carrying work home, are you now husband and wife at home enjoying yourselves or are you still coworkers and, and, you know, partners in that respect. So for us, for my wife and I, um, you know, I joined a business that she started and she grew and was very successful. You know, we spent some time early on discussing, you know, what should I do? Well, the first thing was I had to learn the business. It was a new industry to me. And then we talked a little bit about, okay, who does what? Well, we both have very strong personalities and we also have very different styles. And so we tend to go at a problem or a particular situation differently. We both might get a great outcome from it, but our, our approach is different. That was a struggle at times, you know, because I thought, oh my gosh, what is she doing? And she looked at me thinking the exact same thing. And so I do think that it's important, especially with strong personalities, to be able to clearly define those roles and also set some boundaries and guidelines so that your relationship as a spouse doesn't get impacted by your relationship as a business partner. And, and that's, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Are you still doing that? To some extent, she has stepped away from a lot of aspects of the business. But matter of fact, just today, I was putting together a contract proposal for a potential client. And I really wanted to hear her perspective on how, on the pricing aspect of the contract, you know, so I called her up, we talked through it. And at first I was like, oh no, that's not right. That's not right. You know? And then I said, okay, well, let, you know, let me, let me hear her out. And she had some really good perspective and it really helped me to, to deal with that issue. And, you know, she's always said to me, you know, that we, we both come at things differently. We both get good outcomes and we are better together than separate. That doesn't mean it's always easy to do, but so she's, she's not as involved in day to day, but she still has a great deal of insight. And also she approaches things differently than I do. And so when I can pull her in, it just makes it that much better when it comes to trying to come up with a solution to a particular issue. That makes sense. Yeah. Can you talk about your transition from the financial industry into senior care and how did one complement the other? So, you know, it's interesting. I was, I, I mentor a college student from my alma mater and we were talking a little bit today about her, where she wants to take her career when she graduates. And she happens to be in accounting and she has a rather narrowly defined view of where she wants to go. She wants to be in accounting, but really in healthcare consulting and in a particular city. And as we were talking about some things, I was talking about her skill sets and the knowledge she's gained even just through college and how that can be transferable to and be open to different industries. So I think for me personally, while I didn't know the senior care industry and I didn't know the therapy aspect of it, which was what our business was all about, I certainly had a number of skill sets I, I could problem solve. I was able to, you know, kind of look at the big picture and, and see how an industry you know, might be impacting our business. So I had to learn about the healthcare industry, but just the ability to be able to take in a lot of information, you know, process that information, and then determine how best to use that within your business is something that, you know, really is applicable in any industry. My experience managing people, developing people, dealing with operational issues, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a different industry, but the skill sets that allowed me to have a degree of success in the financial service industry really were very applicable with inside our, our healthcare company. That's really interesting. Yeah. I had a couple other questions too. How do you think that 
we can deliver care better? If I had that answer, (laughs) that's a great question. It's certainly a very complex question. I, I would say that when I look at the senior care industry specifically, you know, and where people are now in their 70s or 80s and maybe in their declining health, you know, families have to decide, can we care for mom and dad at home? And if not, do we need to put them in, you know, maybe move them into an assisted living facility or, you know, potentially even skilled nursing facility? You know, in terms of delivering care, I think that what I found is that the people that are actually the caregivers, so in the senior living, it, it nurses, the nursing aides, therapists, generally those are people that are compassionate and they really do care about the people they're caring for. The problem is that there's fewer and fewer dollars that we have available to care for those people which puts a lot of pressure on the senior care providers. There's a trend right now of trying to care for people in their home. The benefit of doing that as opposed to doing it in a more institutionalized setting like skilled nursing is that it's less expensive. I think that our government needs to look to see how we can take dollars that may be going to Medicaid or Medicare and potentially shift those to individuals that are caring for their families. Because if you're caring for mom or dad at home, it costs money. It either costs your time because you're now away from work or you have to pay for caregivers to come in there. And so I think we need to really evaluate all the government funding of of healthcare, specifically senior living, and ask ourselves, how can we provide more flexibility so that we can help care for people in the setting that's best for them, you know, both physically and emotionally, and also best for their families. And that's still, many times, that's still going to be senior living facility assisted or skilled nursing. But those instances where people can care for mom or dad at home, we need to find a way to start shifting some dollars to them to help offset the cost of that care. That's not maybe the best answer in the world, but it's such a complicated issue. It's how do we pay for it? Where's the best place to care for it? Who's involved in delivering that care? It's very complicated, and I don't think we have the necessary flexibility to address these problems. And and I think the government really needs to take a look at that. Oh, I 100% agree. I love that answer, actually. I mean, that would be so great if, you know, you're caring for someone at home and you could get some reimbursement. I think that that would be amazing. I know that my dad dad is doing that right now with his his mom. And like you mm -hmm. said, yeah, right now it's still cheaper that way. But Mm -hmm. when your elder is able to do less and less things and you need care more around the clock, then I would say that the price is comparable to assisted living. Yeah. No, you know what? You're absolutely right. You know, I think the other thing that we have to think about is how do we start educating people about healthcare so that they're equipped to make better decisions earlier in the process. And and this could be everything from your healthcare for your child, uh, for yourself. But, you know, so oftentimes we go to our care provider and they say, this is what you need to do. And we don't question it. We don't shop around, right? We don't, I mean, we would never buy a car just by walking into the first dealership. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, when it comes to the delivery of care, even something, the cost of getting an MRI can vary greatly. And, and we don't shop around as consumers often. You know, our healthcare system isn't generally designed unless you're in, depending on the plan, it's not designed to motivate you to shop around. So we need to educate people. My wife and I will get phone calls, and particularly Lori, given her background as a physical therapist and her years in the industry, she'll get phone calls from friends saying, it looks like we need to put mom or dad in a nursing home. You know, can you give me any advice? Oftentimes those calls come in like, I mean, we're talking mom or dad needs to go somewhere right now. 
And so I think if we can create an education for Americans to better understand health cares and make decisions as educated consumers, like we do for almost anything else, whether it's shopping for a car, planning a vacation, uh, buying the best big screen TV, we do a lot of education and we get prepared for that. Healthcare is obviously more complex and the consequences are more significant, but I really think that we need to find a way to help people become more knowledgeable about healthcare, how to navigate the system and how to make better informed decisions. Do you have any tips of where we can go? <laughs> Again, it depends upon what we're talking about, but, but since you know, we're in the senior care industry, what I would say there is you know, there are resources out there. I mean, even government resources, everybody likes to rail on the government, but you know, when you look at Medicare website, it does have a lot of valuable information for people. There's also been growth in an industry of professionals that are that will help people navigate the healthcare landscape, especially relative to senior care and making decisions. And, and I would make sure if I ever use one of those that they're educated and you know what are, what are their credentials, how are they getting paid, what are their motivations. But there are people out there right now. You know, there there's a number of franchises out there like senior care advisor franchises where you can turn to people and they'll help you navigate that. But like anything, you need to make sure the people you're working with are qualified. So there's a lot of information out there. There's not one single source, although like I said, medicare.gov is a good one, but it's, it's a matter of doing your research and making sure you're making informed decisions. It's really hard to know who you can trust. It is. And, and you know, the nursing home industry obviously has gotten a really bad wrap over the last, you know, since the start of COVID. Some of it, you know, some places it was justified, but I think overall the industry really did an amazing job of dealing with COVID. You know, when COVID came into a nursing home, you had, you know, maybe a hundred residents who were generally in poor health. And suddenly you have this virus that's impacting even healthy people. Right. And so I think they did a tremendous job, but even deciding on what nursing home is the right nursing home can be difficult. You know, the government has a star rating system where they rate homes one through five. Just using that star rating system isn't enough. I know three-star and two-star facilities that might have landed in a two or three-star range for a specific reason, but ones I believe deliver great care. And I've seen five-star that aren't all that good. So I think no matter what you're doing, you've got to drill down and ask questions of people. You know, we don't ask enough questions. We don't shop around. We don't shop around enough as, as consumers for our healthcare. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's looking for a pediatrician or, you know, looking for a skilled nursing facility. You know, the beauty of the internet is that there is a lot of information out there. When you're searching for it, look for trusted sources and then compare. You know, if you see something that sounds too good to be true, probably is. Yeah. It's hard too, because I feel like reviews could be even from people that don't send their <laughs> families there. Well, yes. And then, you know, more often than not, the people that take time to do a review are usually the ones complaining about something. You can go online and you can search a nursing home and you can find four or five reviews that are not very positive. That doesn't mean it's not a good nursing home. That just means that some people had, you know, a bad experience for whatever reason. And so it, it really does require more than that. I, I think for senior living and, and not just nursing homes, you know, right now there's, you know, there's been a huge growth in CCRCs, which are, you know, continuing care retirement communities where, You've got independent living, you know, apartments, you know, cottages. And then on the same campus, they have assisted living so that if you suddenly need more care, you can move from the independent to the assisted. And then ultimately, if you need much more health care, you can go into the skilled nursing unit. 
There's a lot of those out there. And it really does require somebody to find the ones that are a potential option and look at multiple sources. Look at the government ratings. Look at consumer ratings. Visit facilities. You know, I mean, visiting a facility, a proverbial kicking of the tires is, is probably one of the best ways to support all the other online research you do. Go in there, walk around, look to see, is it, does it look well-staffed? Are the residents just sitting out in the hallway or does it look like they're cared for? Are they engaged? You go through the dining areas, you know, talk to staff members, ask for families that, that are willing to speak with you about their experience. I mean, when we're taking care of our parents when they are getting older, they took great care of us growing up. I think we owe it to them to do the research and the research isn't looking at one simple rating or asking one friend. It's looking at multiple sources, including going to multiple facilities and checking them out before you decide the right place for mom or dad. But like you said, a lot of people wait till the last minute. So they're in a rush to find a place. Right. So in that situation, how do you (laughs) do that quickly? That's a great question. So, you know, I think for me personally, one of the first criteria is who are the people that are taking care of mom and dad? Who are the people that are responsible for mom and dad? You know, even if they're still, you know, independent, who are the children that are the ones that are most likely going to care for them and where do they live? And then I would start with facilities that are in a general vicinity of them. You know, I mean, if you draw in most metropolitan areas, you can draw a five to 10 mile circle and you're going to find multiple options for senior care living. And then I would start there. I'd go to Medicare.gov and look at the star rating. And when you go there, it's not just how many stars, but there's a lot more information. There's, There's information on staffing levels that evaluate how much staff they have. There's information on patient outcomes. There's information on quality outcomes relative to the facility itself and surveys that are done. You really want to drill down there and take a look at it. And that's usually going to help you toss a couple out, you know, and then you get down to maybe three that you feel have good ratings. You've looked at the statistics, you've looked at the staffing measures and the quality measures. And now you say to yourself, now it's time to go and visit them. You talk to the staff. I always watch to see, does the staff engage with the residents? You know, if you have people, you know, in a common area and staff just walk by them without acknowledging them, that's not a great sign. So what kind of interaction does the staff have with them? And how does it smell? How does it look? What do residents say about the food? You know, what's therapy like? One of the big pushes right now in the industry is resident choice. There's a concept called, it goes by different names, but small house is one of the terms used where instead of having a nursing home with a hundred beds, it's, it might be a building with 10 beds where they create more of a common living area. You know, that's a big push to try and allow residents to get, to feel like they're living at home, basically. If those are available, great, but look around and see what does it feel like for mom and dad if they're you know, going to live here. And then you ask for referrals and talk to people. That still takes some work. And if, you have, if you're fighting a clock, that can be challenging. But one thing I would encourage people to do is have a conversation with their parents. Generally speaking, and I probably said this to my kids, don't put me in a nursing home. Nobody wants to get put in a nursing home because we all have these images. But again, we're talking about even things like assisted living independent living. But have a, if your parents are willing to engage in the conversation, ask them how they feel about things. What are they looking for? What's important to them? And if you have that conversation with them, you might be able to work together to put a list and say, 
here are the three to five places that mom or dad said, I'd love to go there if something happens, okay? If they're not willing to engage in that conversation with you, which is understandable, then maybe do the research on your own and, and talk to your siblings, come up with things and tuck it away. And that way, someday, if something does happen and you're now having to make a quick decision, you've already done your research and you've figured out what the options are and you don't feel like you're under the gun. Do you and your wife have different opinions on this? No, I mean, I think we both view, I think we both have the same opinion on how to evaluate senior living options. I think we both understand that sometimes it's the only option for somebody. You know, we haven't looked at our kids and said, oh, don't put me in a nursing home. At some point, we are going to have a conversation to say, hey, listen, as we get older and, you know, we've got one of our children will be, you know, healthcare power of attorney, financial power of attorney, we're going to talk to them about our wishes so that they, they know. Because imagine for a minute that you've never had that conversation with your adult children and suddenly something happens to you and you may not be able to communicate your wishes to, to your children. You're putting them in a tough spot. They don't know what your wishes are. I will share a quick story with you. I had a, a friend of mine whose elderly parents were living on their own, but the father was starting to show signs of dementia, possibly Alzheimer's. And one day he left the house in his car and he got lost. The police finally found him hours later. And this friend of mine, who was the power of attorney, said it's time to put dad into an assisted living facility. His siblings were very upset. They thought it was completely wrong. They also didn't live in town, and they weren't the ones that were responsible. You know, you can even avoid that kind of family fighting by having the conversation with all your children and say, listen, if something does happen and you all can't care for me any longer, and I need to go to an assisted living or, or a skilled nursing facility. Here are my wishes, and I want you all to hear them right now and understand them so that there isn't some fighting saying, dad would have never wanted that. What are your thoughts on like long-term insurance? That's a great question. The question really is, how are you going to care for yourself as you get older? Fidelity Investments has done a study and said that the average retirees will spend somewhere north of $320,000 on health care in their retirement. That's a big number, and that often includes long-term care. You really have to ask yourself, how are you going to pay for it? And, and really, there are three options. You pay out of pocket, meaning that you have the cash to pay for whatever the setting is that you have to go to. You purchase insurance to provide for that cost. And, and it doesn't have to be 100% of that cost. And I think that's where sometimes people get hung up, even if it's a portion of the cost, you know, that coupled with your cash on hand. And the third option is the government pays for it. But the government only pays for it when you're out of money. And so if you have a husband and wife, and let's say the husband has to go into a long-term care facility, the rules vary by state, but essentially the wife would be allowed to keep their home, a limited amount of cash, and their car. They're not going to let them sit on a half million dollar investment portfolio or a $2 million investment portfolio. They're going to expect the, the wife to use most of that for her husband's care until the government kicks in. It really is a question that every couple should have or every individual should have if they're not married. How am I going to pay for my care? I either am very wealthy and I can cover it out of my own investments in cash. I buy insurance to cover a portion of all of it, or I have very little assets and the government will pay for it through Medicaid. So I'm a proponent of doing that analysis and then making the determination. I will tell you that at some dollar amount of assets, it's probably worth just spending your money down and then letting the government kick in. But each situation is different and you have to think about, you know, do you have a surviving spouse? What are your total assets? But it, everybody should engage in that conversation. And quite frankly, a lot of people don't realize the rules and they think, oh, the government will pay for it if I need it. And that's not the case.
Yeah. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to cover? I, I am curious about like your thoughts on legacy and what you would like to be remembered for. <laughs> you asked me a question at the beginning about, you know, as, as I've gotten older toward, you know, toward the tail end of my career, have, has my perspective changed? And, and without question, I think it has. I would tell you that my legacy that I'd like to be known for is, is, a, is a good, caring parent, and a good member of my community that that gave back, you know, both with my time and my money to help those that were less fortunate, because I have been very blessed. I'm not worried about a business legacy or anything more than that. Just knowing that, you know, I really tried to do my best for my children, my family, and, and for the community that I've lived in. If people look at me and think, you know, he was pretty good and he did try and help us all out, I'm very happy with that legacy. That's awesome. Have you had mentors? It's really cool that you mentor others. I haven't had anyone that I would specifically call a mentor. I've had people whose careers I've watched. I've had friends who I've watched. I've worked in companies where I've seen people that are very successful and I've tried to, you know, to learn from them and model from them. Probably no one that I would define as a mentor, but certainly, you know, throughout my career, no matter where I've worked, I've tried to find people that, you know, that I can learn something from, you know, and I've been fortunate that every organization I've worked for throughout my career, I have left that organization a more knowledgeable, more well-rounded employee than when I started. And, and that's a testament to you know the people that I work with and, and to the fact that I was willing to keep my eyes open, my mouth shut, and, and try to learn from other people. Did you learn that from your parents? That's a good question. My father owned his own business. He owned a construction company. Uh, my mother worked as an administrative assistant in New York for a, a gentleman that ran a textile company. I th my parents were very different personalities. I probably took after my mother a little bit more. I think they were both thoughtful people, though. My mother in particular was very well read. I always said she, she didn't go to college, but she was one of the smartest people that I knew. And I'm also a uh, avid reader. And so I, I think the idea there is taking time to learn however that might be, whether it be through reading or through watching and, uh, and seeing how other people do things, you know, and, and a desire to try and be the best, you know, employee that I could be throughout my career or the best boss that I could be. Both of those motivated me to try and learn and get better and, and particularly to learn from my mistakes. Okay. Any mistakes that stick out? <laughs> do you want to do a whole nother podcast on that? I would say that a lack of patience sometimes, you know, where maybe I worked for an organization and I was kind of ready to move to the next level and I wasn't patient enough and, and I changed jobs because of that. So I would say if you're with a good company and it's a company that gives people opportunity, just because they're not moving at the pace that you want to move at doesn't mean you should jump ship. Think before you do that. I think the other is self-confidence and belief in yourself. I think everybody to some extent is plagued by, you know, negative thoughts. But sometimes that can stop you from doing something. And so, you know, I think that what I've tried to learn and do is, is when those thoughts creep in to kind of catch them, recognize them and recognize that just because it's a negative thought creeping in that it doesn't mean it's true. I, I read somewhere, I forget the exact statistic, but we have so many more negative thoughts in a day than positive thoughts. And when I first heard that, I didn't necessarily believe that. But then I started thinking about it. You know, you get up in the morning and you, know, you put on a suit. Oh, does this look right? Or does this tie go right? Or, oh, I think I'm going to hit traffic today and, and I'm going to be late for that meeting. Or I wish I would have said this in the meeting instead of that. And 
I think we're, we're all prone to having those thoughts creep in. And I think it's important to recognize that that happens. And just because those thoughts do creep in doesn't mean they're true. Resist those thoughts. Doesn't mean if something, if you did something wrong, you shouldn't acknowledge it. But a lot of that negative self-talk can really be a detriment to success. And, and I fought through that throughout my career. I would say that learning at an early age how to have positive thoughts and how to deal with where those negative thoughts creep in is something that everybody can benefit from. Oh, definitely. Have you tried to help your kids with that? In this day and age, especially with younger parents and younger kids, there's this, and maybe this is just the old man in me now, but parents are always telling everybody how great their kids are. And, you know, it's, it, if there's a problem, it's not their children's fault. It's the fault of the school or the coach or the boss or whomever it is. I've tried to instill in my kids to be accountable for their actions. You know, my wife and I didn't sugarcoat things when we had to give them feedback, but at the same time, yeah, we do point out when they've done well, or we point out where we think their strengths might be. And if we feel like there's some self-doubt creeping in, we'll talk to them about it and help them give it over that self-doubt. So yeah, there's a fine line between pumping your kids up and giving them a false sense of security and, and helping them build confidence. And I think that if you find yourself always telling them how great they are, that's probably not the best thing in the world. But at the same time, everybody needs a pat on the back. I think it's, it's a balance like everything in life. Also, I'm curious if you have any advice for people that would want to jump from employee to entrepreneur. The first thing is you have to understand that if you do that, you are the person ultimately responsible for everything and everybody. You know, when you work for a company and even at a CEO level, you have a board, you have a management team, but when you start a business, especially when you bring employees on, the buck stops with you. So you have to make sure that you are equipped to handle that level of responsibility. The second thing is that, you know, work doesn't end when you come home. And I guess in today's day and age with work from home, that's true for a lot of people, but you know, this is a, it's not a nine to five effort. You know, it requires a lot longer hours. And you also have to understand what your appetite for risk is because starting a business, even with support and resources is risky. And are you equipped to handle that risk? And then finally, and this is true, I don't care what the business is that you're starting, you have to be well capitalized. You have to have cash. You have to have cash to pay your employees. Uh, if you're doing something on your own, you have to have cash to pay your vendors, to, to buy supplies, whatever it is. And you know, too often people are overly optimistic with how quickly their business will get off the ground and how quickly money will come in the door. And if you don't have capital on hand to help you through those early times, your business is going to fail no matter how great an idea it is, no matter how great a product or service you've got to have capital to get you through those lean times. Have you ever had to be somebody's bank? Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> not always intentionally. And so it's so important. And, and it's so important to understand that, that, that cash is king. Without cash coming in the door, you don't pay your bills and you don't stay open. I love that. This has been so informative, Thomas. Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? What was it like raising you and having you as a daughter? He will definitely have something to say to that. Did he see in you as a little girl what you ultimately became as, as, a, as a grown woman? Did he see this in you? Oh, I love that. That is a great question. I'm interested to hear what he has to say. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Thomas, Absolutely. this has been fantastic. Let people know how they can connect with you. People can reach out to me. My email is tmac923 at gmail.com. And our company website is www.accesshealthconsult.com. That's www.axishealthconsult.com. 
S-U-L-T.com. And I will drop all of that in the show notes so Great. people can find it. Yay. Great. Thank you for inviting me on. I've enjoyed it and uh, best of luck. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. This is your interview with Thomas McDonald. Really sums up a lot of very key words that you have to be able to communicate with people on decisions, whether it comes to your finances or it comes to your health. They go hand in hand. And he started off in the financial institution preparing people for retirement and for in case something happens to you of where you're going to go, as well as then he got into really helping people that were really at the age where the decisions became more imminent and more real. And so he has really a beautiful background of understanding the perspective of the finances and the human side of it. And like what he said, wherever you go and whatever you do, if a person isn't encouraged where there's enthusiasm and where a person's going to feel comfortable, it's not going to work no matter how much money you spend. And as you know, in my own case, my mom, we tried again to send her to a rehab center and she rejected it, even though all my sisters that are now trying to participate in and her health after an absence of five years, thought that that's where she should go, just like I thought that's where she should go. But the fact is, is that that isn't the answer if the person themselves don't want to go. I agree that we've got to come up with a way of having more home health care and giving a loved one a break because it's a big job to do that part of the job is that you have to have a loved one with AIDS. And a lot of people can't afford to do that. And as you know, our health system keeps trying to push people that if they're too hard to take care of and the government can't really afford to do it, and if you can't afford to do it, then maybe it's time to just kiss them goodbye and let them go. I don't think that's right either. So it's a big problem that has to be analyzed where we come up with some better ways. And I think the better way is to have the government put some of the burden on the family members with the right kind of help and give them a break, a tax break, or give them some type of credit if they do that. He also mentioned that when it comes to trust or if it comes to running a business, you have to make sure you communicate and that you're accountable for that communication on how it's going to turn out. Because just when you think that it's just going to go where your children are going to listen to what you have to say, they might do it when you're alive. But if there's issues or complaints of what they're doing, they're not going to do it. They're going to say that they know best and you're too old and don't even know what you're talking about. So it has to be really clear. And where everyone is on the same page, I'm sure this this happens in many families. And Mr. McDonald has said that, that it's easy to even fight over an heirloom that has no value, but just sentimental value. So if you don't clearly point out who's getting what and what it means to make sure that the distribution is what your parents are really intending to do and where they hold everyone accountable for it, can I happen? It's certainly not going to be fixed overnight. That's for sure. No. Right now, like I said, at least from my experience, fortunately, I got to live with all my grandparents. I got to visit and communicate with all of Maureen's grandparents, where we were very, very close to many generations of the family on both sides. And not everyone has that privilege or that knowledge. Your father does have that. When it comes to running a business, I like the, the other thing that he said is that if you want to expand or be successful in a business, the buck stops with you. You have to be responsible for what everybody else does too. You can't even blame someone else for a failure because anybody working for you, if they don't do right, you're responsible for what they do too. And remember, the customer is always right because they even screw up some of their orders 
and they come to you because they expect you to take care of it, no matter what. So not only are you responsible for your men and your business, but you're also very responsible to the customers to make sure that they're 100% satisfied or you're also out of business. And you have to have working capital. You have to do this thing conservatively because if you get funded and something goes wrong or something happens, it doesn't take much to go out of business or to put yourself in debt and get wiped out. So it's not an easy road to have your own business. Not only that, but the type of time and effort and money that goes with running a business, it becomes even increasingly demanding as your success is generated into the future, which means that the business then owns you. And if you don't continue to put in the time and effort to handle its growing pain, you also get whacked. So it's quite an interesting life to be an entrepreneur and run your own business and be able to watch out for all the pitfalls. But there's big rewards and satisfaction if you're able to accomplish that. And I would say, Mr. McDonald, that even though you've worked with people and you've worked with the finances, the end of life, all of that doesn't mean anything. If you haven't enjoyed your family and your outings and taken time off the clock, be able to really have a beautiful legacy with your family. And that's what this show is about. And you asked me an interesting question. Did my daughter turn out with some of the guidance? Did she turn out the way I'd hoped or planned with her? And the answer is a resounding yes, because we're running a legacy show. And she also, even with ups and downs and getting her own experiences, I've always wanted her to reach for the stars and be the best that she can be and to continue the lineage of where she came from. And sometimes she doesn't like it, but she's doing it and doing a great job. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 